Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I will cover 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 28, the end of the chapter, the end of the book. Our context is this. In the first 11 verses of 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul talked about the day of the Lord, which I, along with Douglas Wilson and Adam Clark, say refers to the coming in judgment, coming of Jesus in judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70. This was a switch from his discussing of the coming of Jesus at the end of the world in 1 Thessalonians 4. Now, in verses 12 through 28, Paul is going to give some final admonitions and a benediction. And so we begin. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 13 says this, Now we ask you, brothers, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and to regard them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Now those who labor among you, of course, we would assume to be elders. The commentator Grant says that perhaps it's elders in the making because the church was so young, perhaps elders hadn't been recognized yet. But whoever it is, Every church has to have leaders. Church cannot exist without leaders. There are so many people in the house church movement who are so upset with dictatorial papal authority in their Protestant churches that they went to the other extreme and says, we don't need leadership. It's just where two or three gathered together and they basically had a bunch of mush. That kind of stuff will not last long. You have to have leaders in a church or the church will disappear. Now, notice Paul asked the brothers. He doesn't say, I command you, brothers. He says, ask the brothers. Paul doesn't command in an imperious tone, as John Gill notes. That's because that's generally the way he operated, unless there was a serious moral failing somewhere. We ask you, brothers, to give recognition. Now, that recognition could mean just honor. Perhaps it means money. But let's just assume it means honor right now. That would go along with what Paul thought about giving honor to leaders. 1 Corinthians 16, 18, for they, and this is referring to Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, three leaders in the church of Corinth who had come over to Ephesus and they were with Paul. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore recognize such people. 1 Timothy 5, 17, the elders who are good leaders should be considered worthy of an ample honorarium especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, that's my home and Christian study Bible translation, honorarium. Most translations say worthy of double honor or sufficient honor, more honor. And I think that means respect. Just as here in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul tells the Thessalonians to regard their leaders very highly in love, which means respect. Now, it could mean that the honor could mean an honorarium, as my home and Christian study Bible puts it. But I don't think that's what he meant. And if it is an honorarium, no, that's not a salary. An honorarium is something that you give somebody as a gift in respect of their high accomplishments and deeds. It is not a salary. I don't believe in paying clergy salary. You ruin the relationship between the church and the clergy. You make him a hired hand. And then you say, well, we're paying him. He does all the work. Why should we pay him? Why should we work? Excuse me. Adam Clark says when Paul tells the Thessalonians to regard their leaders very highly. Adam Clark says, quote, they should provide for them and see that they want neither the necessaries nor conveniences of life. So Clark takes it as financial support. I don't think that's, if it is so, it's not necessarily so. And I don't think it's so, to be quite honest with you. Nothing wrong with giving 
money to an elder who's working hard, maybe wants to work part-time instead of full-time. The reason that you gave money to traveling evangelists and apostles is because they couldn't work. They could, but it was difficult, like Paul did tent-making, but it's difficult because they're on the road. Where an elder is local, he can hold down a job where he is. Now, notice Paul tells the Thessalonians, be at peace among yourselves. I don't care how good the church is. And the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians, excuse me, were a successful church, a very vibrant and spiritual, wonderful church. But even they could find reasons to fight amongst themselves. Paul says in verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. That could be among the brethren in general, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown suggest, or it could be between the brethren and their leaders which is something I hadn't thought about when I read the verse, but I, I think it just means everybody needs to get along. First Thessalonians 5.14, And we exhort you, brothers, warn those who are irresponsible, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. First of all, who is Paul exhorting here? Who is he addressing? The brothers. Now what does that mean, we exhort you, brothers? Does it mean the elders? Does it mean the members of the church exclusive of the leaders? Or does it mean the members of the church, including the leaders? It means the whole church, in my humble opinion. First, logically or linguistically, it can mean any of those three, elders, believers, excluding the elders, or believers plus the elders. It can mean any of those three things. But Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1.1 addresses the letter this way. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, they address it to the whole church. So that's sure he's talking, he's talking to the whole church. We exhort you brothers. And brothers, by the way, can mean sisters too because the word is gender neutral, if you will, even though we translate it brothers. Siblings is a direct translation, but we don't ever say that. We exhort you siblings. That makes no sense. Warn those who are irresponsible. Paul was probably referring to the lazy bones in Thessalonica who are mentioned in the second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother who walks irresponsibly, and not according to the tradition received from us. So these irresponsible brothers, they thought the Lord was coming back soon, and within one generation, so hey, what's the point of working? We'll just wait for him without working. So Paul calls them irresponsible in 1 Thessalonians 5.14 and 2 Thessalonians 3.6. He calls them irresponsible there too, so we assume it's the same people that aren't working. John Gill says these people are disorderly, idle, not working, living upon the church without working. So apparently they might have even been taking love offerings from the brethren and not working. Paul says help the weak. Grant says the feeble-minded, the faint-hearted. Every church has weak brothers. Every church and sisters. They're the ones that nobody wants to marry. They're the ones that nobody wants to hire. Jesus loves them. They're the meek of the world, and they're going to inherit the world. They're going to inherit the whole frippin' earth. So you help them out now while they're weak, because they're not going to be weak forever. Be patient with everyone. Another way of saying that is endure everyone, put up with them, tolerate them, tolerate them, bear them. There are people like that in the church that sometimes you just have to put up with. Comfort the discouraged. There's always people who are discouraged. My gosh, this life is long and it is hard. Lots of things don't go right. I'm speaking now in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, in the midst of the new Great Depression as the economy has been devastated and people are dying all over the place because of the play. Hey, we need that, so that's okay. If we're discouraged about that, if you find somebody discouraged about something like that, we need to encourage them because we're not going down. The church will not go down. Jesus will not let that happen. 
We go to verse 15, 1 Thessalonians 5. See to it, Paul continues, that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Repaying evil for evil, that's just another way of saying revenge. Don't do it. It does not refer to self-defense, police action, or military action. It does, it's not a, an absolute call for nonviolence. That's nonsense. Here's some other scripture that speak against scriptures that speak against revenge. Romans 12:17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. Peter says in 1 Peter 3:9, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you will call for this so that you can inherit a blessing. And of course, this is all is all reflective of Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5:39. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, not getting revenge, that is something that human beings have a hard time doing. To want revenge is the most natural, fleshly instinct of everyone. How about blessing somebody who screwed you? Oh, boy. But Paul very calmly says we're supposed to do it. He told the Romans the same thing. Peter told his audience the same thing. Jesus told the listeners on the Sermon on the Mount. Don't get revenge on people. Easy to understand, hard to do. Don't repay evil for evil to anyone. That would include Christians or non-Christians. He might be referring to Jews and Gentiles. That was a division in the church that was often mentioned. But it doesn't matter anybody. Nobody should receive revenge on our part. First Thessalonians 5, 16-18, Paul continues, Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul often connects rejoicing and praying and giving thanks, especially in the book of Philippians. You see that a lot. Rejoice always. Now, that doesn't mean it's necessary to pray 24-7. It just means to pray constantly. Excuse me. Rejoice always doesn't mean that you rejoice 24-7. You don't rejoice while you're sleeping. It just means rejoice in all occasions. Same thing with praying constantly. It doesn't mean you pray 24-7. It means you pray regularly and consistently on as many occasions as possible. Now, rejoicing, Paul also exhorts the Philippians in Philippians 4-4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Twice in one little short verse. And remember, Paul, when he wrote the book of Philippians, was in jail awaiting a possible execution. But he says rejoice anyway. So if, we can, if Paul can rejoice in jail, we can rejoice in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, when Paul says pray constantly in verse 17, John Gill notes that some only pray in times of distress. We're supposed to pray not only when we're in trouble, but when we're not in trouble, when things are going good. If things are going good, give thanks, as he says in verse 18. If things are not going good, you need help, well, then intercede and ask for help. But pray all the time regularly, daily, don't stop. Pray when you're in the shower. Pray when you're driving to work. Find time to pray whenever it is and pray constantly. Ephesians 6.18 says, pray at all times in the spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert in this with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. So pray at all times includes interceding for the saints, praying for other people. You know, oftentimes we pray for ourselves because we're in so much trouble all the time. The saints are always needy. But Paul there in Ephesians says to pray for all the saints. Pray for everybody else. And you should praise God when you pray. You should give thanks to God when you pray. And you should intercede for all the saints when you pray. And you should pray that God gave me my daily bread, the things that I need. You need to do all of that kind of stuff. When Paul says give thanks in everything, 
He said the same thing in Philippians 4, 6. Don't worry about anything, but in everything. Don't worry about anything, but that's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your request be named to God. See, we have a request, right? That's for ourselves. We intercede for the saints, he says in Ephesians 6, 18. That's for other people. And whatever you, whoever you're praying for, whether yourself or somebody else, you do it with thanksgiving. Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because without Jesus, you would be a walking dead man. 1 Thessalonians 5.19-21, don't stifle the spirit, Paul continues. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what is good. Now, how could you stifle the spirit? He's probably referring to the next verse in verse 20. Don't despise prophecies. In other words, you despise prophecies, you're stifling the spirit. Jameson Fawcett Brown says it might refer to speaking in tongues. By stifling the spirit means don't tell people not to speak in tongues. In other words, the way cessationists always do, make you feel like you're some kind of criminal because you speak in tongues. But I don't think so. I don't think that's what he's referring to here. I think he's referring to prophecies because he says don't stifle the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. That idea seems to go together. Well, why would the Thessalonians perhaps despise prophecies? Because people get excited. The Spirit starts moving. People start prophesying. People get all encouraged and edified and exhorted the way prophecies are supposed to work. And then somebody is going to start getting in their flesh, and they're going to start prophesying all kinds of stuff that ain't true. And so then when we, you were supposed to marry Susie Q or whatever, and then when the prophecies turn out to be false, the Thessalonians get upset. They say, uh-uh, we're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to have any more prophecies. And Paul says, uh-uh, don't stifle the Spirit. Keep on doing prophecies. Now, how do you avoid the excess that would cause the Thessalonians to not want to, to stifle the Spirit and not want prophecies and to despise prophecies? How do you stop that? You test all things. Hold on to what is good. Now, you hear people sometimes say that, well, you know, prophecy's got to be perfect or you get stoned like in the Old Testament. Well, there's a difference. In the New Testament, obviously Paul expected there to be prophecies that weren't true. He said in 1 Corinthians 14 to judge prophecies. He says, let, the, let one or two prophesy, let the others judge prophecies. Well, if Paul expected all prophecies to be perfect, there wouldn't be any judging, would they? So he he said he didn't say kill the prophet who screws up. He says judge it and say tell the body, hey, this prophecy ain't right. And right here he says test all things. And I'm sure what he means is test all prophetic utterances. Test them to see if they're right. Now, one thing I always do when I hear somebody prophesying an event, I just hold on to the prophecy and see if it hap takes place. But now, remember, most prophecies are not supposed to be or not necessarily Prophecies about the future, edification, exhortation, and comfort is most of it. And, and let's say somebody wants to edify somebody and comfort them. They're in adultery, and they say, oh, love the one you're with. Well, that's not a prediction of the future, but it's something that's morally wrong, and so you have to judge it and test it. I remember there's one prophet who had got a name for himself because he had predicted long before Trump was running in the primaries that Trump was going to be president, and he became president, which is a black swan event. Nobody ever thought that was going to happen. And so uh, he got a lot of cred. And then I watched him on YouTube predict that in the last congressional election, there's going to be a red wave. The Republicans were going to sweep the House, and the Republicans got clobbered in the election. Well, of course, nobody ever talks about that. Test all things. You know, that would be a good verse. Verse 21 is a good verse for charismatics. Test all the prophecies you hear, and don't believe all of them. 
Wait to see if they come to pass. See if they line up with Scripture. See if they edify, exhort, or comfort. Well, if verse 21 is a good verse for charismatics, how about verse 20 for cessationists? Don't despise prophecies. Here's some other scriptures talking about testing prophecies. 1 Corinthians 12:10. To another, the performing of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. That's really not testing prophecies, but that's testing. Well, it's the testing words that are spoken in the assembly, I think, whether one's true and one's not. Some people, that says it means distinguishing between demon spirits, like which demon spirit is causing this and which demon spirit is causing that. I don't know. I don't, I'm not an expert on demonology. But there is some, there's judgment that's going on here when you distinguish between spirits, either between two prophets prophesying or between two demons causing trouble. 1 Corinthians 14, 29, two or three prophets should speak, and the others should evaluate or should judge. 1 John 4, 1, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to determine if they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Well, there's prophets. We're supposed to test the prophet to see if it's a true prophet or a false prophet. John was perfectly convinced that his readers could do it. If they can do it, we can do it too. We can tell if a prophecy is true. I don't really worry about prophecies being true or not true. You know, if somebody comes to me and says, Hey, thus saith the Lord, I am not in this place. Well, that ain't true. (laughs) How can he be not be in the place if he's supposedly inside the prophet prophesying? 1 Thessalonians 5, 22-23, Paul says, Stay away from every kind of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stay away from every kind of evil. What kind of evil? Well, it could be doctrinal evil. It could be moral evil, and I think that's what it is, because in verse 23 he mentions, May God sanctify you, and that, re- that tends to make you think of moral evil. Separate yourself from moral evil. Jameson Fawcett Brown says the evil that Paul is referring to is false pretenders claiming to prophesy in the name of Christ. Stay away from every kind of false prophet. That could be because that's the context. But whatever it is, stay away from it. That's the best way to deal with evil. Stay away from it. You're not going to get rid of evil in this world until Jesus comes back. This world is full of chock full of evil, and it always will be, and and it's disgusting. You read history, it's horrible. You read the newspaper, it's horrible. You watch the news, you read the Internet, it's nothing but one sin after another. And we're not called to uh, obliterate sin on this planet. We can't do it, but we can stay away from it, which means there are pockets of refuge where you can go and not be affected by all the filth that's in the world. Every kind of evil. Now, the King James translates that as stay away from all appearance of evil. And it turns out, I, I did a brief search of a lot of different translations, and half of them, a, par, a portion of them, translated every kind of evil, and, and, a lot, and some of them translated like the King James, which is avoid the appearance of evil. So I don't know which it should be. I'm not a Greek expert. But let's just say... It, the King James is right, and it's all appearance of evil we should avoid. Well, we need to examine that a little bit because it is not impossible. It is impossible to absolutely avoid the appearance of evil at all times. Now, of course, we should try every every bit that we can to do so, but it's not possible to do it at all times. When I was practicing law, I had a code of professional responsibility I was supposed to follow, and one of the most famous canons in that code for lawyers is avoid the appearance of evil. Not only avoid evil, but avoid the appearance of evil. Don't even look like you're doing wrong. Okay, well, let's look look at some examples here in the Scripture to see if we can do that. How about Jesus and the Samaritan woman? 
a single woman, well, I say she was single, let's put it this way, a woman, a woman living in sin had four or five husbands whose reputation was shot in her little local community there in Sikar. And here she is talking alone with this man from Galilee, Jesus. Don't you think tongues could wag at that sort of thing? And when, especially in that culture when women didn't do that sort of thing. Maybe today it wouldn't be a big deal, but back then I bet it was. How about Jesus eating with the Pharisees? Doesn't that look like evil? The Pharisees were evil and Jesus is sitting down with them. Doesn't it, doesn't it look like Jesus is sanctioning the evil of the Pharisees? How about Peter eating with Gentiles? Oh, like he did up in Antioch. and Well, he refused to do it actually, but... But uh, what he thought was, if I eat with Gentiles, it's going to look like I'm sanctioning the trashing of the law, and it's going to look like I'm sanctioning anti-Semitism and people's hostility toward the Jews, so I'm not going to do that. But then Paul says, no, you better do that. You and Barnabas both, you better eat with the Gentiles. Oh, but that doesn't look good, Paul. That has the appearance of evil. Paul said, do it anyway. How about Elijah living with a widow from Zarephath, 1 Kings 17.9? Get up, go to Zarephath that belongs to Sidon and stay there. This is God speaking to Elijah. Look, I have commanded a woman who is a widow to provide for you there. So Elijah goes up up the coast there to Sidon, near Zarephath, which is near Sidon. And there's a woman living there. She's a widow. She has no husband. And he stays there with a widow in the same house. Does that look evil? Woohoo! So, uh, avoid the appearance of evil. This is behind the Billy Graham rule. Now, Billy Graham, let's talk about the Billy Graham rule. That's a good rule, actually. What happened was, early in his ministry, somebody and it was who was inspired by the devil decided to ruin his ministry, and so they got some woman, they got a photographer and a woman that was scantily clad in the pajamas or whatever, I forgot the stories, and... Not, and somehow managed to, in a hotel where Billy Graham was staying, tried to get a picture of her and Billy Graham together in a compromising situation. And so Billy Graham said, well, that's enough of that. So he said he would never, ever be seen alone with a woman everywhere, anywhere. Now, as a general rule of thumb, that's fine. But folks, in the real world, sometimes it ain't possible. I recall a friend of mine who was a fellow elder at a church, a previous church years ago, and he had a fundamentalist friend that he would ask to preach at this church. Our church was not a fundamentalist church, but this friend of his was. And so he was always preaching law stuff. And one time he got up one Sunday morning and said, basically he quoted the Billy Graham rule, said he would never, ever be alone with a woman. That very afternoon, he goes back to my elder friend's house. My elder friend had to go get some milk for his wife. So... He drives out, he goes to get the milk, and he comes back, and there is the fundamentalist sitting there with his wife alone in the house. Just two hours or so after he had preached that he would never do that. And so my friend, who has a delicious sense of irony, says, Well, now, look who's alone with a woman in the house. Now, of course, there was no hanky-panky going on between them at all. In fact, the fundamentalist hadn't thought a thing about it. Neither had the wife. But my elder friend, he... <laughs> He thought about it because he thought about the inconsistency and how hard it is to practice what you preach when you come up with these man-made rules. So as a rule of thumb, fine, but let's don't get so rigid about it that sometimes in, in the exigencies of life, things come up where you might end up in a situation that's not good. They just, you know, just if it happens, guard yourself as much as possible. Turn on a tape recorder if you need to. Turn on the camera. I don't get out of there or I don't know. 
just do whatever's necessary, but sometimes it is, it's going to happen. All right, after that long discretion, let's look at verse 23. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Sanctify means to separate from the world and consecrate to God. Sanctification is the prerequisite for peace, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say. Because in verse 23, he says, may the God of peace. You want peace between God and you and between you and your fellow brethren. Well, then you need to be sanctified completely, brought to maturity completely. It is much easier to be at peace with mature Christians than it is immature, carnal, fleshly Christians. Much easier. Now, Paul uses the phrase here, may your spirit, soul, and body be kept sound. Spirit, soul, and body. Ooh, that sounds like trichotomy. That phrase is constantly involved in a huge theological, I say huge, it's a relatively staple theological debate, the dichotomous-trichotomous controversy. It's too involved to go into here. But basically, the dichotomists say there's a material and immaterial part of man, man two-part dichotomy, two parts of man, material and immaterial. And the trichotomist says there's three parts of man. There's the body, the material, and the immaterial is divided up into two parts, spirit and soul. And this phrase right here sounds like it, spirit, soul, and body. But just because it sounds like it doesn't make it so, there's lots of other places where soul and spirit are used interchangeably. That's in favor of the dichotomist. I had a theology night meeting at my church, and I invited a friend of mine who was a strong trichotomist to present trichotomy. And I, and I, just for the sake of argument, I presented dichotomy, even though I don't really totally necessarily believe in it. And we both had it was a great discussion. The very next week, one of the sisters in the next theology night meeting says, "I don't see why we talk about dichotomy and trichotomy. What difference does it make? It's not getting me closer to Christ." And, I said, oh, man, all that work I did, and this is the way it gets taken. And the woman who had started the theology night meeting says, now, wait a minute, I find that offensive. It means that you're not exploring anymore, and I, I want to explore theological things, and now you're talking down on me, because that's exactly what I was thinking. But So if you're not interested in that, that's fine, but I just pointed out to you in case you want to explore that further. It is kind of an interesting theological discussion, but at any rate... It's it's an expression that means your whole being, your immaterial and material part. Whether you're dichotomous or trichotomous, it means everything about you, your mind, your will, your emotions, your prayer life with God, everything, your physical body, may it all be kept sound and blameless. And may this is like a prayer, may, this means I'm praying that. If he's praying that your body be kept sound and blameless, that means he's praying for health. And by golly, sickness is the curse of mankind the older i get the more people i know that are just hobbled with sickness when yours truly just has a few little minor problems here and there i just had a cancer cut off my back you know boy we better pray that our body stay sound because it ain't a natural thing in this harsh world that we live in well anyway we our whole being should be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our lord jesus christ i'm assuming that coming is 8070 because the immediate context in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians is referring to the coming of Jesus in judgment on Jerusalem in 8070, in my humble opinion. I've already talked about that in the previous audio. And so what he's saying is, I want you guys to make it until Jesus comes and judges all the people who are persecuting you, namely the Jews who are persecuting you. I want you to be kept sound and blameless in the midst of this persecution. You're going to be all right. You're going to be kept that means preserved. Here's some scriptures talking about being kept. John 10, 28 through 29. I give them eternal life, Jesus said, and they will never perish, ever. 
No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That's being kept, folks. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to take care of us. I mentioned, let me go back and take up this coming of the Lord Jesus. I said it was 8070, and I said the context helps tend to make one think that because verses 1 through 11 in 1 Thessalonians 5 refers to 8070. But there's another argument, too. If Paul is telling the Thessalonians that they would be preserved in body, soul, and spirit for the coming of the Lord, and the coming of the Lord is 2,000-plus years later, oh, really? The, pers- the Thessalonians are going to be preserved in their health for 2,000 years? They're not going to live for 2,000 years. So how can they be kept and preserved for 2,000 years? So I think he's talking about 8070 here. We go to 1 Thessalonians 5.24. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Notice you don't come to Jesus without him calling you first. He who calls you is faithful. That means trustworthy, as in 1 Corinthians 1.9. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. There's calling associated with faithful there. In 1 Corinthians 1, 9, and also in 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, he who calls you is faithful and also will do it. Will do what? Well, it's probably referring to verse 23, the previous verse, which is to sanctify them and to preserve their body, soul, and spirit until the coming of the Lord. He is going to do that. He is faithful to do that. He is trustworthy to do that. God never calls somebody that without preserving them. He calls them to enter into the Christian life, and then he's going to preserve the Christian throughout the Christian life because he's trustworthy. You can lean on him. You can rely on him. You can trust him. First Thessalonians 5.25, brothers, pray for us also. Brothers, note how Paul doesn't address the leaders of the church, as John Gill points out. Rather, he addresses all the church, as John Gill points out. And Gill is right. First Thessalonians 1.1, the address in the at the beginning of the letter Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy addressed the entire church of the Thessalonians, not the leaders, not the pastors, but the brothers. And he continues with that in 1 Thessalonians 5, brothers, pray for us also. I remember one time doing a talk at a house church conference. I went through the whole New Testament, picked up the word brothers to see how many times it was used. It's incredible. I don't have the number in front of me now, but it was in the dozens but he never says pastors, not once. And when he does say elders, he always accompanies it with brothers. That's a Bible study that I wish more megachurch pastors or just general paid salaried clergymen would do. Pastors and, and people who insist on being called right reverend or pastor Bob, all these honorific titles. Jesus said, don't give people honorific titles. You're not to call people rabbi teachers, and yet we do it. Despite the fact he said, don't do it, Paul never used honorific titles. He just called everybody brothers, including the leaders, brothers. He didn't say disrespect the leaders. He said, hold them in high regard, but they're still brothers, bottom line. They just have a gift like everybody else. Now he says, brothers, pray for us also. They also there refers to the fact that Paul had earnestly prayed for the Thessalonians, so he's praying for the Thessalonians, so I want you Thessalonians to pray for me also. When did he pray for the Thessalonians? Well, it could be just implied, or it could refer to 1 Thessalonians 5.23, two verses previous, where Paul says this, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved. That's the King James translation. It's more obvious. I pray, God. My home and Christian standard version had may God, which is the same thing as I pray, God. 
But at any rate, Paul's praying for them. He wants them to pray for him. This is this is the way Christians need to operate. We need to constantly be praying for one another, asking people to pray for us, and offering to pray for them. First Thessalonians 5.26, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. You notice the brothers are being addressed to, to greet all the brothers. That means that that all the brothers are going to greet all the brothers with a holy kiss as opposed to an unholy kiss, I suppose, in opposition to a hypocritical kiss, John Gill says. You know, it's real easy to go through formalities without meaning them. You shake hands with somebody that you hate. No, a holy kiss, that means a consecrated kiss, a, a kiss separated from evil motives or hypocritical motives or shallow motives. And by the way, this is a cultural thing. It doesn't mean it needs to be applied today. It's not like gender distinctions which are not cultural but are biological this is a mere cultural thing today we would say greet all the brothers with a handshake because that's what we do at least before the coronavirus now i guess maybe we'll have to bump elbows whatever it is paul says just it's just a friendly greeting be nice to everybody tell them hi now when i said all the brothers are greeting all the other brothers jameson Vossett brown disagrees with that and i think he's dead wrong he says quote or they are dead wrong they say, quote, it appears this epistle was first handed to the elders who communicated it to the brethren. Now, where does it say that? Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown have absolutely no proof of this. As I said earlier, no New Testament church letters written to elders alone, so why do they say that? It's amazing the biases of, of clergyism, the clerical establishment, money, bureaucracy, power, rank, title, and office. It is all alien to the New Testament and should be flushed down the nearest John. 1 Thessalonians 5, 27 and 28, and we'll finish up this chapter. Paul says this, I charge you by the Lord that this letter be read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now charge there, that's a strong word. That's the form of a very solemn oath, as John Gill says. Now, by the way, oaths can be used on certain solemn occasions. They're all through the scriptures. God does them. The apostles, Paul uses oaths all the time. There's this... When Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, let your yea be yea and your yes be yes, don't use, and your no be no, and don't use oaths. That's talking about these fake oaths, these slippery oaths that Pharisees use to get out of binding themselves. That's not talking about oaths, an absolute prohibition on oaths. And here's one right here. I charge you. I adjure you. That means I, I want you to swear. I want you to take an oath. <laughs> so, now Adam Clark says that Paul must have, may have had some kind of reason to suspect that the letter might be suppressed. So Paul's very strong here. He says, I, I charge you that you have this letter be read. I don't know why. Why would the Thessalonians want to suppress a letter from Paul? So I don't know where Clark gets that idea from. But at any rate, he does make it very clear and very serious. He wants everybody to read this, all the brothers, not just the leaders, but all the brothers. So that's how they got the New Testament Bible around back then as they copied the letters and passed it around. And then they read it orally to when they were assembled. Verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's how Paul always signs off. In fact, John Gill says that's one way you could tell the letter was from Paul. Because he says the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Grace, unmerited favor of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now he doesn't say I'm writing this letter in my own hand like he does in several of his letters. At any rate, we have finished 1 Thessalonians 5. We have finished the whole book of 1 Thessalonians. And we will begin the second letter of the Thessalonians in our next audio. I hope you hang around for that one and I hope you enjoyed this one.